The faith of Jesus says, every time something is wrong, I still know God is good. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today are your friends and mine, Karen. Hello. And Tracy. Good morning. And Amy. Greetings. Yes. <laughs> wow. Dramatic pause. Was she, like I that. said greetings. <laughs> yeah, it was just a little dramatic pause there that made us go, wait a minute, did we lose her? <laughs> there she go. Oh, gosh. So I have a little trivia question for you guys this morning. Who knows what the largest organism on the planet by mass is? A grove of aspens. <laughs> Tracy knows where I'm going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's either aspens or it's a fungus. I can't remember. Right. I think I, it might actually be a fungus, but but yeah. <laughs> but the aspen trees. If you're if you're not if you're not from the area, the area we live in, it's really popular for people to plant aspen trees in their yard. And um, I bought my house with uh, with with some aspen trees on the corner. I have a corner lot and those trees died recently. And so I had them taken down. Well, unbeknownst to me, although I've been fighting them a bit for a while because I'd have little aspen trees popping up in my yard here and there. But then when I cut those trees, when I cut the big ones down, now my yard just exploded with aspen trees. I I I. I I am at war with my yard right now, digging and digging and digging up aspen roots that I'm finding are completely intertwined under my grass. And there is just there's just little little aspen trees poking their heads up all over the place. And Tracy saw my yard a couple of weeks ago and it's just a it is just an absolute wreck right now because I've just been digging the whole thing up. And, oh, it's a it's a battle. It is a battle. But it is a, it is an interesting little bit of trivia because the way aspen trees reproduce basically is they don't they don't so much have seeds they just kind of clone themselves they send their roots out and they pop up another tree off of the roots and so when you see a grove of aspen trees that's actually one large organism so when i was kind of researching this i found i think there's in um I think it was in Utah. The largest aspen grove known is there and i can't remember they actually gave, they they named the thing and uh it's it's one large aspen plant, I guess. I don't know. It's almost like a weed. So just a, <laughs> a word to the a ca- word of caution to to people: if you plant aspen trees in your yard, just know that they're going to they're going to take over like a weed. They're going to get you. Yeah, which is funny <laughs> because they're they're not really native to here. They they grow well up in the mountains. But here, they, I mean, you have to plant them here. They don't just they don't we don't really get aspen groves here on their own. But they will grow, and they will, man, they are invasive, and it is a battle. So lots of fun there. So much fun. Anyway, like usual, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. (laughs) (laughs) We are going to be talking, we're going to start talking uh, about Ezra in Ezra chapter five. So bit of review and it's, it's been a minute for us too in recording time because we've, it's actually been a couple of weeks for us. So we, we kind of have to review for ourselves here, but 
the book of Ezra is taking place basically the same time as the book of Daniel, but we're getting the perspective from uh, the Judah and Jerusalem side of things here more than the Babylon side of things. And so you may recall that, uh, I got to remember who did it, Cyrus gave the decree for, for, for the Jews to be able to go back to Jerusalem and start to rebuild, specifically rebuilding the temple. And uh, let's see, I think our last episode, we talked about how uh, King Ahasuerus or Xerxes had kind of told them no, that they needed to stop. Well, now we're into King Darius, who you might recall was the king who was in charge when Daniel got tossed into the lion's den. So that is uh, that is some interesting context we're having. And we're seeing a lot of interesting overlap of this time period with all these different with all of these different uh, prophets and books being written from these different perspectives. So that's where we are as we start the episode or as we start our reading this week, where basically construction has stopped because because the previous king said they, they needed to. And Ezra 5 starts with an interesting, I think it's interesting, it names a couple of prophets that we are en- going to end up talking about here on the, prophet, on the, on the podcast. Haggai and Zechariah. We'll be going to be talking Haggai a little bit later today, uh, and Zechariah we'll probably be talking about in the weeks to come. I really love the idea that these guys are specifically named here because we're really starting to see. We're, it, it, I don't know. I think we're seeing things come together like we haven't seen them in the Bible in the past. I was just wondering if you would mind reading verses one through five. I can do that. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Yeah. Yeah. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethnar Bosnai and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them, Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? Then accordingly we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. So that yeah, is it's just helpful to me to yeah. hear it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that is where we are. So we have these prophets named. Um, we are finding that once again, they're being, you know, they, that things are getting uh, challenged. Yep. Facing a little opposition. Yeah. As they're supposed to be building this temple, they were given a decree to build the temple. God wants them to build the temple. And the people around are going, what are you doing? Why are you building this temple? <laughs> and uh, they don't seem to have I, I don't know I haven't really seen that anybody has any real good reason for wanting to do it other than they really don't want to see it's like they don't want to see Jerusalem regaining power um, because these guys these this Tatanai uh, comes along and it's almost like I don't know it, it feels like they want to he wants to be a tattletale <laughs> about what's happening because they he ends up sending this right, letter right, right. he sends a letter to darius basically saying you know this temple's getting built and um you know what are you going to do about it 
<laughs> so um, well, it's, it's a little more subtle than that. Like they approach the crew that's working on it and they say, why are you rebuilding the temple? Like they just walk up to the people who are building and the people who are building say, well, we, you know, we were ordered to by, you know, King and he was going to pay for it. And, you know, they tell him all about the order. But since, you know, nobody had Xerox machines at the time, nobody has a copy of the order lying about. And so the people who are checking on it (laughs) write to the current king and they said, hey, like we saw them rebuilding this temple. And so we approached them and we said, you know, why are you doing this? And because we know how protective vassals are of their, of their tyrannical overlords. Right. Mm. And so, and we, they said this, is it true? Yeah. And I, you know, I find it, it, it just seems kind of interesting. It'd be funny to me in a way that, you know, they see something happening. It, I, I can't tell that this in any way really affects affects them this this governor to have this temple this temple being rebuilt but they just feel like they gotta they gotta raise a stink about it and they got to um i don't know they gotta they gotta check up on it and you know was this actually okay else's business yeah that's i mean i think that's it to me that's the biggest thing to me is that it's really none of their business um and you know i mean the way things are done back then is basically you would ask somebody and they would tell you and they're just choosing not to believe what's been said. Uh, and so they're like sending this tattletale letter off to the king. But at the same time, you know, Israel had a long history of being pretty powerful when God was at the at the helm. Mm-hmm. And so if I were a surrounding nation and I knew that history and now here come part of the Israelites and they start to rebuild... I'd, and I knew for a fact they'd been taken into captivity just a couple of generations ago. I, I, I might not want my neighbor to be that strong either. I suppose. I suppose. I mean, even though it's been generations, well, generations, I don't know, at least a generation of difference, I suppose. I suppose there could be a couple different generations with the younger if the younger crowd is but it's like the triumph of nations like, like i don't think this was a neighborhood like group of dudes i think this yeah. was probably people from the government who were seeing what was happening in the land around them and wanted to know how the land around them was going to develop and i think that's perfectly legitimate now if you think back to when israel was going first going into canaan what was one of the first things they did well they went and marched around jericho Right. And Rahab was there. So the spies go to Jericho to see what it's like. And and Rahab says to them, we've all heard of the triumphs your Lord, your God has given you. And we know that this is because he's the God of heaven. Right. He's the God of everything. And, and, and she rattles off. She's a prostitute living in the city wall. And she, a plain old civilian, rattles off. Uh, triumphs that Israel has and she's like she's like our whole city is sick with fear because of you so I I think the Israelites had a little bit of a reputation in the grand scheme of things I suppose Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah so they they do send this letter off to Darius basically telling him the temple's being built we asked the names of the men doing it so we could tell you their answer is that they serve the God of heaven and earth and they're rebuilding the temple that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed because their fathers provoked God. 
and they say Cyrus said that we should build this temple, and he gave us the he gave us the temple articles to be used in it. So and so then in the letter they say the king should search the treasury to find if there is a decree by Cyrus to build this temple. Basically, you know, search the records, look at the <laughs> look at look at the minutes. We need to look at the minutes and see if this actually happened because this was <laughs> it was a couple of it was a couple of kings ago. Because uh, apparently, yes. I mean, it seemed like Xerxes Xerxes didn't know about it, and he didn't bother to look. And so now Darius is being being called upon to to check the minutes and see what they find. Which is, I mean, that's essentially uh, chapter five in a I nutshell. I had to kind of chuckle at that, honestly, because Cyrus had had funded this. So mm-hmm. it makes you wonder what was going on with the Israelites that the current king didn't know that the treasury was sending money or maybe the treasury hadn't sent any money for a while. You know what I mean? Like it was Mm -hmm. funded and, and yet there's no reference to that. Like the current king has to go back and look like, did this actually happen? Hmm, I don't even know. Right. Yeah. You would think that the king would have some concept, but I don't know. I guess, I guess the, uh, the land conquered or the, you know, the, the empire was big enough that the king doesn't know everything that's going on everywhere. And especially what's was done uh, a couple of, uh, of uh, administrations uh, before him. So when Darius gets the letter, then he decides to go ahead and make a search, which is interesting that they have to actually make a search. But, you know, we have a hard enough time now with all of our electronic record keeping and stuff that if you have to go back and find record of something being said or done, I mean, I've sat on a couple of school boards and I've sat on a couple of church boards and, you know, you sit around and somebody, there's, there's always somebody who goes, well, didn't we talk about, didn't we say such and such a thing? And you look around the people and everybody was like, well, that sounds familiar, you know? And so, so um, I guess it's not that hard to, to believe that, somebody doesn't know precisely what's going on well my bible has notes about what year it is and so 23 years have passed since the original declaration of cyrus and now i could see that i mean we sometimes have trouble in the board meeting like you said figuring out what happened a month ago and Mm. so here's 23 years that have passed and it's a whole new administration so you know there there may have been some miscommunication yeah well, as we get into chapter six, then Darius does have the search made. Not only does he find that the decree was made, but even that there were building specs given for how big to make the thing and how it was supposed to be paid for. Or in, in, in the records, they find that it was supposed to end up being 60 feet tall by 60 feet wide, or not solid, sorry, 60 cubits tall, 60 cubits wide. Um, it's supposed to be the foundation built with three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber. The expenses mm-hmm. are supposed to be made from the king's treasury, and all of the articles of gold and silver were supposed to be turned back. So not only was their record that they were supposed to go and build the thing, but like specifics about how to build it and and how it was supposed to be paid for. So that <laughs> to me, that was kind of a of a, a nice little in the face of the people who were trying to to do the tattletaling here, and and uh, yes, yes, they were told to do this, and they were told to do it like this. So then Darius's uh, uh, comeback is basically, leave it alone, let them build it. Yeah, it says that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, leave it leave alone the, and let leave them. Leave the build work it. of this house of God alone. <laughs> 
Yeah, and you know, that's something too, because not only that, pay the cost from the treasury, give them what they need for sacrifices, and he says, so they can pray for the life of the king and his sons. So uh, I'm thinking this was after Daniel was put in the lion's den, because by then I think we kind of had a concept that Darius, well, even maybe if he wasn't worshiping the God of heaven um, solely, it seems like he definitely had a very a very good respect for for God. And, you know, here, I don't know if he's just trying to buy favor. I don't I'm not sure. But he it, it seems like some of that is is rolling over into this decision. So I can't find it right now, but one of the things that I read about this was saying that when the false Smyrtus arose, that he went around and destroyed a bunch of temples. And and Darius actually called him the destroyer of temples. And it was like in Darius's mind, uh, allowing people to worship their God was a big deal. And it was a thing of respect with him, which that's kind of unique. I know Cyrus was very interested in that, but but they were pretty good about it. The Persians were pretty good about allowing people to worship their God. Well, and that's an interesting part of the whole conquest to me, where, you know, they went in and they took him out. And it doesn't seem like there was ever any kind of real personal aspect to it, which is an interesting aspect of, of war anyway. It's just like, you know, we're just we want what you have. And so we're going to come take it. Um, mm-hmm. But and yes, there was siege. Yes, there was people who died. But overall, I mean, I don't know, looking at it from my from my perspective now, it just seems like the way the Babylonians treated the people they conquered wasn't actually the worst. I mean, if people would have basically rolled over, they would have just been carried away. They would have been alive. They, they wouldn't be left in their homeland, but they would have been allowed to survive and, and seems like even thrive under these, under these regimes. You know, I think too, that's when you look at the first world kind of domination is they integrated other societies. It's not so much they went in and conquered them like before and crushed them and left them. Now they just integrated them to continue their conquest of the world to make their, you know, their area or territories larger. And I think that's what we see, especially with Babylon. They they extended far beyond their boundaries to, you know, to control the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And something there that you were just talking about, the integration you know, Babylon, we're going to see Babylon once we get down to uh, Revelation specifically. We're going to see Babylon uh, used as a as an analogy, I guess you could say, for apostate religion down the road. Where here we're talking about integration and Babylon in Revelation is, is referred to in that that way because it would seem it, it involves a lot of compromise. It involves a lot of bringing in aspects of religion that are not found in the Bible, that are not found in what Jesus taught or in the old laws or any of that. Uh, so that's kind of interesting that it's an integration that they conquered with and not just flat out uh, destruction. Well, yes. And then I let you sit. Oh, so I'm your conquering nation, your, your conquering king. And I let you sit over there and feel independent and all you have to do is give me this form of allegiance, right? Mm. So I'm not sure how complimentary that is because it's a false independence. And then I'd skim off the top, right? That's like mm. the mob showing up once a week to take 10%. And that's their 
of your proceeds for the week, and that's their payment to not attack you throughout the week and take all of your proceeds and destroy your laundromat in Chinatown. See, so like there's like the, I get it. And there's a real, there's a real spiritual comparison to that because that's exactly what Satan does. I'm going to let you sit over there and think that you're living independently. And all I require is your allegiance in this form, Mm -hmm. right? All I require is this small payment over here. It's really not a big deal. You still have your identity. You can still, I'm not telling you how to worship or where to go to church. I'm, I just require this. So have at it and I won't hurt you. If you keep doing this, then I'll leave you alone. So yeah. it's a little bit icky, but yet if you're, if you're conquering nations, you don't actually want to police all those nations. You don't want to show up and have to staff that foreign country you just want a percentage of what they have to offer. Yeah, all this will be yours if you'll just bow down to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if that sounds familiar. <laughs> so yeah, very interesting way to conquer. Very interesting to to uh, conquer without destruction. Well, I just I like we are in six now, right? I mean, yes, it's okay to talk about. Okay, um, <laughs> verses fourteen and and fifteen are very interesting. And the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Idu. And they build, they finished the building according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, the kings of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, and it was the sixth year of the reign of Darius, the king. What I find interesting about that is how often in the Old Testament does the prophet end up dead? Or the prophet ends up sawn in half, or you know. All yeah, that's a terrible things. calling. Yeah, it is, and and so Haggai and Zechariah are actually remarkably successful. They are, you know, like the people listen to them. They're in a state of of mind right now where they're like, "Wait, God is restoring what we lost through our apostasy." And so I think that's interesting. And then the second thing I find interesting is that we're given. I love it when we're given specific dates. And to me, it's very important because my mind is steeped in postmodernism, right? Like a lot of people think, oh, the Bible's just mythological, but it's not. This happened on March the 12th, 1515 uh, BC, you know, and I find that very interesting. Mm -hmm. Me too. One of the things that really jumped out at me in, in chapter six was who's this guy that that writes the letter now then or that's receiving the letter, now then, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Sethar Bozani, or whatever it's called, is, you know, stay away from there. This is the king, This is the letter from the king back to the reporters, like, hey, these guys are rebuilding. So this will tell you how stuck in 2022 my brain is. I read Trans-Euphrates, mm-hmm. and my first thought was, what was it before it transitioned to being the Euphrates? <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, that is, actually, that is actually what I thought. Like, that is how modern my brain is. That tra- trans-Euphrates did not, does not mean across the Euphrates. Trans-Euphrates meant that it had transitioned to becoming Euphrates. Okay, I'm done now. Funny. Well, I mean, that is an excellent example, though, of how how some things have been hijacked lately, uh, how we're 
Well, I, I don't know. A little bit of that integration, you know, things get get pushed and pushed and pushed on us so hard. It's like, Meaning well, you changes. Can, Meaning yeah, changes well, over time. Yeah. You can do what you want over there, but just, you know, we're just going to, we're going to, we're going to push this just a little bit. And then we're going to push this just a little bit, and you know. And so, you know, it's just, uh, it's a, it's a great example of that to the point where now our, our minds are like overrun with, with these thoughts. And it's the first thing we hear. Yeah. I think the other thing, though, it tells me is that's why it's so important to study the context of the scripture and try to understand what did it mean to them? What, you know, what did all these things mean in their context? Like there's this really weird passage. uh, I don't remember where it is. I think it's in Judges where this woman's husband has been killed and she doesn't get her inheritance. And it goes through this long thing that's so hard to comprehend about like moving dirt and accepting a... Uh, sacrifice and all this kind of thing. But in, in her mind, until she got her inheritance, there was no justice. And it's such a difficult passage to understand. And yet, um, if you study it hard enough, you understand that God finally gives her justice in a way that she understands it. And I think, you know, that also applies here in just the fact that, you know, we have to dig deep in order to understand what's really happening. Yeah, paying attention to to the context of the time and not trying to place our modern day sensibilities upon it. That's a that's an issue that yes. we see a, a lot happening so many times and people a lot. I, I mean, not even just with the Bible, but even just with things that happened 40, 50 years ago, people look at the people of the time. And, oh, they were so horrible. It's like, well, they did some bad things. But if you were to c- crawl inside their head, would you? Would you still think they were terrible people or would you think they were just misguided? You know, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. But but when we try to put today's sensibilities onto something from the past, I think we I think we make a mistake in in our judgments on some of those things where we can look back and go, that was a bad thing to do. But did the people realize they were being bad? You know, I feel that way about bell bottoms, honestly. <laughs> no, you, you see what I'm saying? Like there are, so, there. I'm not trying to make light of it. I get what you're saying, but like there, are, there are so many things. There are so many things that society develops on its own, or grows to accept, or you know, first accepts with gritted teeth, and then later it just becomes normal. And then later generations look look back on it and go, seriously, like what were you thinking? Yeah. And some of those are matters of personal preference, and others of those are matters of societal significance, and some of those are matters of spiritual warfare. And so I, I do believe, I do believe that, and, and I'm not picking any one topic, but I do believe that this whole uh, takeover by integration is real when it comes to spiritual warfare. And I think that we all know that acceptance is a good thing. Like, I'm a flawed human. You're a flawed human. I have no right to judge you unless I know you very, very well. And then I still don't judge you, but I have the personal ability, because I know you very, very well, to say, hey, I've noticed this thing. Are you aware of this thing? Like, from the outside, it looks like that. Like, are you sure you're doing okay? Right? Like, I only get to call you out if I'm close enough to be a trusted friend. That's yeah. That's how it goes. Like, I'm not a prophet. I'm just a person, right? Only prophets get to walk in and say, you, you are the man in that story, right? Like, only Mm -hmm. prophets get to do that. But 
between humans, we don't get to throw stones. Right. Us in our glass houses, right? right? But but if you think of how Satan does this, he'll take the generational preferences, which are usually in reaction to the generation before, right? We've all seen that happen. He'll take those generational preferences and he'll start teaching acceptance. And then at some point, society starts to say, okay, individual acceptance has now now becomes societal impact. And as a group, we're either going to accept this and make laws to support it, or we're going to reject it and we're going to make laws against it, right? And so it becomes this, it feels generational, but it's not. It's just society developing. There comes this push and this pull, and then all of society shifts. And I think that this is how God does work, and I think this is how the devil does work. Because Satan will take that acceptance and he will push it all the way up into matters of conscience and matters of moral import and matters of spiritual definition. And that's where it gets really dangerous. Yeah. And we are way off track from Ezra, but that was just my little. <laughs> well, yes and no. Yes and day. no. That's what it got me thinking about. Yes and no. Because bell bottoms. <laughs> and that's where I ended up. Well, I was for a second there going, how did we get here? But it's because we're talking about the way Babylon conquered, which was by integration. Right. And so and so that's, uh, you know, that's what we're, we're kind of seeing here, where even though I guess at this point we can call them the Jews are being allowed to uh, do their thing, they're still they still have this entity of Babylon kind of hovering over them and looking over them and and whether or not they get to do things is really at the whim of the king and it depends on how well the record keeper was you know did did the secretary keep good minutes and so i, I you know there's that aspect of it but then i still i keep looking at darius and I, I man i would love to crawl inside his head and know really what he was believing at the time what was his relationship to god because when he's asking for them to be able to pray for for his life and for his sons and he's making sure that things get paid for and then he talks about anybody who alters the edict should be hanged by a timber from his own house right good and gracious. the house destroyed so so darius seems very serious about this I mean, he, you know, remember when Daniel got tossed in the lion's den, he didn't want that to happen. And when Daniel came back out, he, uh, Darius ended up having the guys who, who conspired against Daniel tossed in. And so while we might question his, Darius's actions, his motivations here are very interesting to me. And I would just love to know, is this because he's sincere about his belief in God? Is he simply hedging his bets? Um, I think he's hedging his bets because of that thing where, where in the past, like the kings of Babylon had become personally familiar with the power of God. That was in their records, right? Mm -hmm. And so like these captives that we have, they really have a powerful God. And Cyrus acknowledges that openly when he says, go back and rebuild. Here, take your own things back. Here, take some of my things back. I'll help you build the temple to your God, right? There's definitely an acknowledgement of the power of the God of heaven, the God of the Israelites. And I think this is somewhat him hedging his bets for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it would just yeah, it would just be interesting to get in there and see. see Absolutely. What it it's, yeah, hedging his bets, but it certainly feels like he at least had some belief 
that was motivating it. I mean, I guess, how do you not, if you look into that furnace and you see the fourth guy where there was only supposed to be three, uh, there's, you, there's something going on there. You know, you're he definitely a little belief based upon, uh, evidence, you know? Yeah. Just be, it just be kind of interesting to see what, uh, what, what all of his motivation was, but so anyway, he does, he makes this decree and he's very serious about it. And so the temple is able to be completed. The governor follows the orders of Darius and they, uh, as Amy talked about before, how they prospered under the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. Finished on that third day, the month of Adar, in the sixth year of Darius. And they have one of their big blowout celebrations of sacrifices, which, <laughs> I don't know, I guess by by our standards today, we look at it and maybe cringe a little bit and see just the, you know, the numbers of animals that got killed for these things. But, but as we recall, they really were kind of more of a big old, almost more like a barbecue than just than just killing animals for uh, for the killing of them but it was 100 bulls 200 rams 400 lambs 12 male goats as a sin offering and then the priests and levites got assigned to their divisions of service again it says according to the book of moses and so there's a there is a push to go back to what was before well i say before but i mean before even things started getting bad to where to where Jerusalem had to be removed from the situation they were in because they had gotten so bad and so far off track. And now we're seeing that they're trying, they feel a real desire to get back to their roots, back to their origins, back to what their religion was supposed to be. How sincere is it? It seems like maybe at this point, because they are listening to the prophets, that they have a real sincerity. As you find anytime you have a new project that starts and people get on board and they're they're gung-ho for it i think that's maybe kind of what we're seeing here is that the people are being allowed to get back and restore their glory from before even though it's not as as great as it was as we'll talk about here in a little bit i think that was pretty pretty much them that was par for the course for them though Mm -hmm. they had their peaks and their valleys but they never could just sustain yeah not not for not for a significant amount of time, at least as far as historically speaking. I mean, it might have been a few generations, but but yeah, it didn't. Uh, I don't know. We we do see them kind of sticking to things historically, I guess, but not necessarily for the right reasons. Once we get into the time of Jesus, we can see that they're very, very much trying to stick to those rituals uh, and they are not wanting to compromise like they did before. But it seems like it was more. It was more about the ritual and less about the faith in God. So I feel like it's important to remember in this time that we go through these kind of cycles, too. And you guys have probably talked about this before. But when you go through one of those dry times, it's so hard to remember the times when, like this is saying, and, and the hand of the Lord made them joyful. Like, I know that the Lord has given me joy, given me, you know, his presence. And, and I've been um, in places where I felt like, wow, God really used me. Or I was with people and I know that uh, together we felt the Holy Spirit, you know, those kind of moments. And then you'll go through another time where you're like, I don't know, like, you know, is God even real or, or I don't feel his presence. Is he still leading me? And, um, and so, you know, sometimes when you're looking back, especially during the times of the wilderness wandering, you're like, how could they mess up so bad? Like God just did this for them. And then you look at your own life and you're like, yeah, but four months ago you were hiring a kite because you thought God was leading you. And today you're like, 
I don't know. So, I don't, <laughs> do you guys ever experience that? Oh yeah, I, well oh, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. that's the human, the humanistic part to it is that, you know, you hate to say it, but you know, you look at it like, um, I like to think of like organizational structure. Sometimes you're only, you sometimes you feel like you're only as good as the last time you said yes, and so you just <laughs> you try to live on those those victories, but you tend to forget them when the times get rough. Right. Mm. I mean, and it's, see, there's I, only so many times you can paint a church. <laughs> yeah the body breaks down um but you know i think i think when you look at it it's i think we're all that part and i think when we look at israel sometimes you can take it just like amy's saying you could take it to heart and you could and really make it personal and say you know what i was i was riding high two weeks ago and now I, one thing happens <laughs> and i'm down in the dumps yeah yeah, we're so weak emotionally. You know, why do we, yeah, why do we put that limit on God that he's only as good as the last time he said yes? Yeah. Sometimes we do not see the big picture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we forget that our time is fleeting. You know, if we're, if, if, if we're, if we're lucky, we live 80, 90 years, you know, and if you look at that in so the lucky. scope of the, of the history of the world or the universe, that is not even a flash in the pan, you know? And so a couple of months ago when we were, when we were flying high and now we're down in the dumps, if we could see that overall arc and just look at how it's just, it doesn't even, it's not even a blip that shows up, you know, it's just, it's uh, if we could just remember that, but you know, our perspective is our perspective and, and uh, our lifetime is forever to us. So, yeah, I, I think of, I think of toddlers. So I think of God as our parent. And then from that point of view, I remember back to parenting toddlers. They were the sweetest of creatures. They were a complete mess all the time. You're lucky if they made it to the bathroom, right? Mm, But to them, they were so big and so competent and so excited at how big they were. And they were clearly ready for all of the things in the world. Just ask them. They would demand them from you, right? (laughs) And if I told them no for a reason that to me was perfectly obvious, they, stuck down in their tiny little life, barely making it to the bathroom in time, were devastated. And it was like, you know, the wails of despair and, you know, on and on like this. Anybody who's ever raised a kid knows what that's like or even been around a kid. Like, infants and toddlers are stuck in their very, 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 very limited point of view. And so when I look at the grand scheme of the gospel, I see a call to grow up. It, mm-hmm. and, it, and it doesn't mean that we are unloved when we're immature, but it means that when we're immature, we come in on Jesus loves me, this I know. But we're, we're expected to grow into Christ's likeness as priests, and act our part here on earth, respect ourselves, respect others, respect God, and play our role. And for me, that sometimes results in a conundrum of prayer. I often find myself hesitating to ask for anything for myself because I'm just one little person, and why would God bother with me, right? So you can take the point of view either way. You can be the toddler so stuck in your point of view that you demand, 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 right? Or you can err on the other side of that, which is the direction that I tend to go, which is, oh, no, I don't even matter. I'm just one small person. No, you're a child of God. 
You're a child of God and you have work to do and you should ask for the resources and you should ask for what you need in order to do that work. So it's kind of like, it's a little bit of a balancing act, but yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting stuff. I really like what Karen is saying, and it makes me think about Revelation 14, verse 12. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are mm-hmm. they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I, I used to really wonder, okay, what, what is the faith of Jesus? And, and then, so I meditated on that a lot. And when I look back at the Gospels, I see that the faith of Jesus is Jesus knows that God is good. And throughout everything that he goes through, he's always like, oh, no, God is good. God is the one we can rely on. Like the faith of Jesus says, every time something is wrong, I still know God is good. And I just, I love that verse now because instead of all the other things that people do with that verse, what I see is that I can hold on to God because in this very confusing and dark world, he's always good. So I just think about that sometimes. Mm. Yeah, no, that's good. That is good. Yeah, our perspective. Perspective. Perspective is important because it is an interesting, I don't know, I guess dichotomy where where our span is very short, but to us it is very long. And so it's not it's not ridiculous for us to think about our situation and you know, want to see things better and 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 be able to do our part. You know, we we do have significance because I guess, you know, grand scheme, cosmological time frame, it's very small, but our lives are intersecting with other lives who's who, you know, their perspective on times are just like ours. And 70, 80 years is a long time to them. And so maintaining that idea that we are an important aspect of everything that's happening is important, too. All righty. Well, the last part of Ezra then is talking about Passover. They start to celebrate Passover again, which I guess they hadn't done in, at this point, over 70 years. I mean, what did we decide now at this point when they're building? Did we say it was how long have they been? Um, how long have they been in uh, Jerusalem again? It's been a bit. So it's, it's been more than 70 years probably since since Passover was celebrated. And so it's uh, it's a significant thing for it. So as we roll into the book of Haggai, then Haggai has it, it is very much overlapping what we've been talking about already. What I really loved about Haggai, though, it's only two chapters long. And that's not what I loved about it. Not that, not that it's short. But what I really, <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, there is a lot that gets compacted into two little chapters here. But I loved, like uh, Amy pointed out earlier, the dates we're given very specific timeframes for when these things are happening. And it seems like we're seeing that more and more now as the Bible is unfolding, we're getting more of a very definite time frame of, of when these things happened historically. And so when people try to say, Oh, the Bible is just a book of fairy tales. Like, well, no, it's got dates. It's got facts. It's got, you know, you you can say what you want to say about whether or not you believe in God, but calling the Bible just a fairy tale is an absolute fallacy because we have timeframes that are, that are verifiable and we know these things happened and we know when they happened. Well, just real quick. I, I know we've talked about this before, but I, I feel like, no, it actually, like we have the date of the flood 
because no, I mean, it's hard to date it with our modern dating system on the Julian calendar or whatever, but he says, and on the, you know, on the sixth day of the fourth month on the 13th, you know, year Mm. of, uh, of his life or whatever, you know, the 600th year of his life. So I think that's, to me, that's super important because Mm -hmm. he is saying this really happened. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so the book begins again with the command to build. And this is the command from Darius to build. In the second year of Darius, the sixth month, the first day, which I'm sure if we wanted to, I'm sure certain translations probably have a very specific date uh, from our perspective on that. Um, It says 520 B.C. That's mine does say that as well. So 520 BC, we're given this time frame. And again, it talks about a word being given to Haggai by Haggai to Zerubbabel. And so this this is fun to me because we were just reading in Ezra, where Ezra was talking about Haggai and Zechariah. And now we're getting to see what Haggai uh, was expressing to the people that Ezra had been talking about. The word coming from God is is interesting because he says, and I'm paraphrasing, the people are saying that it isn't time to build God's house. Now, I thought that was interesting because they've literally been sent there to do this. But now the people, is this the people of Jerusalem saying it's not time to build God's house? Because then God is saying, is it time for you to live in your fancy houses while my house lies in ruins? Consider your ways. You better be checking yourself on this. Because well, we talked about this before. Like they got there and they laid the foundation and then they mm-hmm. stopped. And we had figured right. it out before. Like how many years was it that they stopped building? Uh, it was a surprising number of years. I don't remember what it was, but it was, yeah, it was like it was a number. years or something. I was going to say it was yeah. like 20-ish. Yeah. Yeah. They, they got there. They broke ground. They got all excited. They did the the initial set of things, and and then they just kind of wandered off. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and 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 God is saying, he, the way He puts it is, "Consider your ways." And to me, that is that's something that we should probably take to heart, not just with like the physical things, but what are we spending our time and resources and energy on? Are we are we spending it on personal stuff or are we spending it for the kingdom of God? Yeah, I, I thought this was so interesting the way that he keeps reiterating, like that's the word of Haggai, the word of Haggai is consider your ways. And then verse six of chapter one, it says, you have sown much and you bring in little. You eat, but mm-hmm. you're never full. You drink, but you're not, uh, but you're still thirsty. Um, you have clothes, but you're not warm. And and so he's saying, oh, and you put your money in bags, but then those bags have holes. And so he's saying, I'm not blessing you. Can't you see? I am not blessing you. Yeah, yeah. You're 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 <laughs> you're, you're spending you're spending your resources and you know, like I said, time, energy, finances, uh, goods, whatever. You're spending it all on yourself and you're trying you're trying to build yourself up and god's like i'm not there i'm not with you on that so following up in those next few verses god says it really plainly so starting right where amy uh, left off in verse seven this is what the lord almighty says give careful thought to your ways go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that i I may take pleasure in it and be honored says the lord you expected much but see it turned out to be little what you brought home, I blew away. 
Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Yeah, so I think there's an analogy we can certainly draw from this of of God's house versus our house. You know, like Tracy says a lot of times, the human humanistic or uh, the self. Where are we putting our resources? You know, because as God keeps saying, check yourself, check yourself, or or consider your ways uh, is the way the New King James put it. But it's basically, it's like just, you really need to reevaluate your priorities here, especially after they had been pulled away and now they're coming back and they, it seems like they're already starting to go, eh, I you know, eh, whatever. I don't know. You know, okay. you know I was looking at it and, and I kind of go back to even when they were wandering, you know, they, they set up the sanctuary there because, you know, they needed to be close to God. Mm-hmm. You know, when they built the temple in Solomon, it was a spectacle. It was huge. It was consecrated. There was fire coming from heaven. And then you know, they lost focus on that. And then when it was destroyed, they rebuild it and there are people that are joyful and then there are people that are crying because it's not what it used to be. Mm-hmm. But then when I see him say this now, it should be everybody. But I think what we fall into, and it's probably been going on for ages and ages, is that it's just a few people in the church that take care of the church. When he's saying it should be a nation, mm. it should be everybody. That should be everybody's focus on maintaining God's house. And we just don't do that. Yeah. Well, yeah. And God's house in the literal sense and God's house in the figurative sense, yes, I think. Yes, both. Yep. Because, because like you say, I mean, you see it. You know, we, we, we try to build up the church. We try to build up membership whatever, you know, with the hopes that people will come in sincerely on board, wanting to further God's plans and but then and participate. And then you always find out it's just seems to always be the same handful of people who end up getting burned out after a while. And it's unfortunate. But. <laughs> well, I, I hope this isn't out of order, but so I'm excited by the next couple of verses, especially in light of what Tracy was just saying. So verse 12 says, and then Zerubbabel um, and Joshua, the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord, their God had sent them, the people did fear before the Lord or show respect to the Lord. And then the Lord says to them, I am with you. And so to me, that's very exciting because it's like, okay, they obey, they, they do exactly what he says, they rebuild the temple, and then he's assuring them of his presence. And isn't that what we all want? Like, we want to know, hey, I actually am getting to know God. I actually am starting to understand his ways, and I feel his presence and, and all that. And so I find that verse kind of exciting because, like Tracy is saying, when, when he gives you something specific to do, and you go do it, then suddenly you do feel his presence helping you, guiding you, and I just I, and, and enabling you to do the thing that he asked you to do. Yeah, well, and, you know, there was an aspect of that, too, that I thought was pretty cool, because when you look at those dates again, you see that it was less than a month for the people to actually listen and do it. So, so Haggai, I didn't have to spend a lot of time trying to convince people that this is what they were supposed to do. It's like they heard it, and then they did it almost as 
probably almost as quickly as they could. So th that's kind of a cool, inspiring aspect of this as well, I think. So what I was thinking, and this is back a minute, right? This is before we moved on a couple of texts. The way it was jumping Sorry. out at me was like in the in the Old Testament, the sacrifice of Jesus hadn't happened. The presence of God was over here in a sanctuary, right? There's still a sacrificial system and there's the present. If you want the presence of God, you have to go over there. And so even, you know, the Israelites would pray, even if they weren't in their homeland, facing the direction of the temple. I think that some of this stuff changed. So this, you know, this dedication to the service of the temple and the maintenance of the temple and the sanctuary and all this stuff, to me, that was more important in an area when the, in an era, not an area, when in the era when the literal presence of God was over there in the mercy seat, above the Ark of the Covenant, above the law, behind the veil with a priest to go into that presence for you. You see what I'm getting at? Mm. Like, when I think of modern analogies about the value of the sanctuary, to me that has now become internal. Like, we are the temple of God. His presence is in all of us. Through Jesus' work, that veil of separation was ripped, and we are now the temple of God. And the next time that there will that we will be able to have a literal presence of God is in heaven when we are in his literal presence. Like in heaven, there is no sun. There is no night because God is the all of the light that it needs. There is no night there because his radiance fills heaven and it is always bright. Right. Like so we're kind of in a different era now. So when I was reading this and I was reading all of these things that God said about, you know, respecting his house and this and this and this, like, why is your emphasis on your things over here? What about me? When I was reading that, I was internalizing that. Mm -hmm. So in my head, that whole thing read where your treasure is, there also will be your heart. That's what I read. Yeah. Whether that, you know, in the era of the the Israelites here was outside of themselves, like they were they they started to build a new sanctuary and then they went over here and started building their houses instead and two decades later they were still doing it right so so it was an actual outward distraction from building one house to building another house which is which is a very graphic illustration of putting their treasure elsewhere yeah yes yeah. but for the modern era post sacrifice post ripping of the veil of separation between the holy place, you know, that separated the holy place in the presence of God, then to me that comes inside myself. So that's kind of what was going through my mind as I read this, was that, that you know, that New Testament text, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's kind of, that's, that's kind of where I was coming at it from too, where I was kind of seeing this uh, God's house being, being, uh, sort of an analogy for our modern day of God's kingdom and and our focus what what we're building up what are we trying to what are we really trying to accomplish are we are we letting God's house sit uh, in ruins while we keep building things up and then we're just so happy we're so proud that oh gosh look where we are you know I mean the people of the time oh we're back in our homeland and most of these people probably, 
well, we know most of them had never lived there, or at least, you know, uh, those who had lived there at this point were, were kind of old and were probably very young. And, uh, they're just, they're just looking at what they have, what they've, what they've got. And they've let, they've let what's truly important sit by the wayside while they've built up their own, uh, little domains, their own little kingdoms, you know, as we can tend to do. And I'm, and that's not just a financial aspect. That's a spiritual aspect. So moving into Haggai chapter two, then we move into, let's see, I think it's just the following month because, um, how did that roll? Yeah. So we started this in the sixth month of the second year of Darius. Now we're into the seventh month of the second year of Darius, which is kind of interesting here to me too, that Haggai's prophecies, at least is what we're getting here is all compacted into a really small place because everything I'm seeing here is all within that same year. But so we're a month later and another uh, prophecy comes from God. And he's just saying, Hey, remember the old temple? Remember how great it was? This one's not awesome basically but yep but stay strong because the covenant from when you came out of egypt still stands that's my paraphrase of things here how yes. many how many generations does that go back at this point i mean we're talking at least hundreds of years were we into the thousands of years at this point i you know i'm i'm, I'm fuzzy on that math but it's been a long time and god is still holding to that covenant from way back when and he's reminding him of that. Hey, we made a covenant. I made a covenant with your forefathers. That covenant, you've inherited it. It still stands. And if you guys will honor that, I'm going to honor it too. Uh, which has always been his, his his message when it comes to that. And then he says, in a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. And that had me thinking, remember, we've talked about sea and dry land relating to populations sea being lots of yeah. people dry land being so basically he's kind of saying everything i'm going to shake everything up all the nations are going to be shaken up and he says they shall come to the desire of all nations that's an interesting phrase to put on things we've heard i don't know i guess i guess we probably haven't heard this i have heard this phrase in a relation to jesus Yes. Uh, being called that desire of all nations. Um, the people at right. this time probably didn't quite know what was being talked about. They might have thought that this is they're talking about um, Israel. They're talking maybe they're talking about uh, Judah and Jerusalem. But, you know, we look at it in hindsight and they're going to come. You know, everyone will come at some point to this desire of all nations. And he says, I will fill the temple once more with glory, more than the first one. And so that's interesting too. Even though this temple is smaller, this temple is going to have more glory than the great big one that that Solomon had built. Well, if he's looking forward to the Messiah, do you think he's talking about Jesus? Uh, I think so. It's probably not. I, I don't know. My my perspective is kind of that that maybe it's not necessarily talking about the physical building of the temple. Maybe it's talking more about the well the glory that's going to come. So, yeah, maybe. No, maybe. I, I think that's exactly it. Like, I think that that's clearly what it is, because mm. he's saying, and the desire of nations will come and I will fill this house with my glory. 
the glory of the latter house shall be greater than the former. Well, it was only greater in the fact that Jesus taught inside the temple compound. And so Jesus ends up teaching in this very same temple. I had to look it up. Like Solomon's temple was destroyed in 586 BC. Then the second temple is called Zerubbabel's temple. But then Herod expanded it and beautified it and like, you know, made it all gorgeous and huge and all that. But that is the temple that Jesus walked in. That's the temple where Jesus healed the hand of the withered, you know, the man who had the withered hand. And, you know, all these stories of Jesus actually walking among his people. A lot of that happened inside the temple, temple precincts. So I think you guys are right. That has to be a reference to the Messiah coming. Mm. But, But again, that's the difference between... This this temple has had the presence of God and the promise of God and the promise of the sacrifice and the sacrificial system lived out within it for generations. This temple here is going to have the reality of the Messiah. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Greater than the former. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only way it could be greater. All promises of God are yes in him. Yeah, greater where before we did have that presence of God, but really, I mean, that presence was, I guess it always seemed to me there was a physical aspect to it, but not in a sense where you could literally walk up to God, ask him a question, have him just have him explain theology to you and talk Bible passages with you, uh, you know, put a literal hand on you and heal you. Well, there was uh, this separation of the priest, the priesthood, mm-hmm. right? So you you know you couldn't look at his glory and live. Um, very very few few people ever saw it. Moses did. Whenever he would go to talk to God, he would come back glowing and have to put this veil over his face so he didn't scare his people. You know, um, the priests had the urim and the thummim for asking questions. You know, but there was this whole elaborate system of separation. Like these people have been set aside as pure, and so they can they can implement the sacrificial system, and then this one person at a time can go into God's presence only on certain dates and with a cord t- you know tied around their foot in case there's a sin unconfessed in the camp somewhere and they have to be pulled out. Oh, and by the way, we're sewing bells on the bottom of their uniform so that you can tell if they collapsed. Right. There's always these degrees of separation. So to me, the the greater glory is in the approach where you get to walk right up to Jesus and sit on his lap. Yeah. So very, very cool prophecy there. Messianic, cool messianic stuff that uh, I don't know. It's just it's it's fascinating to, to contemplate here. Now. Two months later, see, Haggai ha- it's so it's so compressed, and I'm fascinating by fascinated by how it's like how all over the map it seems Haggai's prophecies were because you know it goes from build the temple, you guys aren't you guys aren't paying attention. Then it goes to uh, okay, you, you're building it now. Look at it; it's not what it was. It's going to be better. And but then we get into this next aspect of it. The next thing we see is people being taught in the temple. And there's almost like this question and answer period. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask now the priests concerning the law. So mm-hmm. he still wants them to understand and teach the Pentateuch. Like he still wants them to understand what he had given them when Moses was still around. Right. Yeah. And so he, they, they go into these kind of funny questions that we don't think about too much. You know, like if, uh, you know, if 
the flesh touches the, if the garment touches the wine or the oil, you know, will that flesh still be holy, blah, blah, blah. And, and some kind of odd things, like we don't think this way nowadays, but it's showing us that God still wants them to know and understand the law that he gave them. I went a little bit, I went a little bit different angle with that. I There's, yes, there's this historical thing of like, you need to relearn the law. I actually went into a, a little bit of a broader spiritual thought about that. It was like, and I kind of, ch- I kind of really chewed on this passage for a while, trying to make sense of it in my own head. And basically what I came mm-hmm. out with is in this world, there are spiritual things and there are natural things. And in order to remain spiritual, you guys remember that text in James where it says true, true religion is this, take mm-hmm. care of the yeah. widows and, their, and orphans in their problem in their troubles and remain unspotted from the world, right? If you intend to remain spiritual in this world, it is a process of separation. And so what I actually got out of this, I'm sure it was a much more literal application of thought to the, to the Israelites and their, their book of the law. But what I got out of it was if you have decided to separate yourself from the natural and set yourself aside into the spiritual, be aware that if you are careless with that, you can desecrate your own boundaries. And so something that has that is natural and has made no effort to separate itself out into anything else, if that brushes up against the spiritual, it is not automatically made spiritual. It has no special state of being, there are no vows, there are no boundaries drawn, right? That is not a violation of its state to accidentally brush up against something spiritual. But if something that has reserved itself for spirituality brushes up against the natural, it's disrupted and it needs to go through a process to re-reserve itself. Does that make sense? You see what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, So like it's... I I saw an illustration of it in high school once. They did this very simple illustration. So whoever was preaching that week called up two people and they had them stand. So the the stage, it was kind of a round-shaped stage, and there were maybe three or four little steps going up to it. No big deal. And they had one person stand up on this step, and they had another person stand down on the step below. And then they had the person above try to pull the person below up onto the higher step and it was and it was basically impossible like it turned into a full on wrestling match and it was hilarious then they regrouped and they had the person who was on the step below try to pull the person from the step above down to where they were and it was actually quite easy it was quite easy to get them off balance and then in order to step forward and catch their balance they had to go down and that's that's kind of the way i see this is like this world has two, this world is basically two worlds functioning simultaneously side by side that are invisible to each other unless you're paying attention. And True. in order to be part of the spiritual world, you have to do what Paul said. You have to die daily to your natural self and you have to continually re-consecrate yourself to the, the higher spiritual requirements that come with focus on God. So anyway, Amen. I got really philosophical about that, but that's where I went with it. That's cool. Yeah. 
No, your thoughts on that were very similar to mine there because you know the 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 basic premise is if something holy touches something common, does it make the common thing holy? No. If something defiled or something unclean touches something common, will it make it unclean? And the answer is yes. It really does point out that how we we need to separate ourselves from those unclean things to keep from becoming unclean, to be, keep from getting defiled. Uh, as you know, as I'm thinking about it, you know, if, if you think of, uh, 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 oh gosh, I don't know, uh, you know, a person covered in mud, and they come up and they give a hug to somebody who's not the person who is not covered in mud is going to end up with mud on them, but yeah. the person who has the mud doesn't. The, the clean, the cleanliness doesn't transfer to the person covered in mud. And so so to stay clean, to stay whole, you have to stay away from the the unclean. You have to stay away from from what's dirty uh, in order to remain clean. Yeah, which is, I think, how you, you end up in the book of Revelation at the end of time with this time of trouble, such as the world has never seen, and you end up with a peculiar people. Mm-hmm. Like the people who are holding themselves separate now, they probably don't stand out a whole lot in day-to-day life. But even our little group, just since the beginning of this podcast, think how many times we've made observations about, wow, the world is just separating. Like yeah. the gap, the gap between people who think like this and people who think like that is getting wider and wider and wider. And you think that's not going to escalate before the end of time? The people who have managed to stay true are going to be peculiar. Yeah. Sore thumbs. Every last one of them. Sore thumbs. Absolutely. So, yeah, so that's the message given to God. Basically, keep yourself clean. And I think I think to some point they tried to they tried to hold to this. But like we've said before, and as we get into the New Testament, we're going to see how they they did a really good job of of keeping up with the rituals, but maybe not such a good job of keeping up with the relationship. I thought it was really interesting in chapter two, where he says um, he calls out the specific day. God does. He calls out the specific day and he Mm. says, give give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before and how they will be now. And he says, do you have any seeds left? Right. Mm. Do you have this? Do you have that? You've run out of your own resources. Mark this date. And he calls out the specific date and he says, from now on, I will bless you. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. Yeah, that was interesting. Well, I was just going to say, I feel like this is when the beginning of the overcorrection starts. It's like before they would mess with all these foreign gods and they would, you know, sacrifice their own children to these crazy gods uh, from that region. And then from then on, they don't go back to idolatry, but they're obsessed with like washing their hands and keeping away from people who are unclean. And they they separate themselves so completely that they can no longer see the poor or mm-hmm. take care of the widow or the fatherless. You know, they, they, yeah, they're like, no longer doing true religion. Yeah. Instead, they're doing rituals. Right, right. Yeah. Whitewashed yeah. graves. This is the beginning of the process of becoming whitewashed tombs that Jesus calls them later. Right. Yes, exactly. So through all of that, I don't know, the, the chapter ends with just an interesting little, I, I don't know if I'd call it an aside, I don't know. I don't recall it really ever coming back again, but the idea that Zerubbabel is chosen as a signet for God. He's like, uh, I guess, kind of somehow or other, Zerubbabel is going to be 
like a like a seal. I forgot. I don't know. I don't know how. I don't, That's I'm, way better than being an Isaiah or a Jeremiah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't. I don't know a hundred percent how that plays out. Uh, I don't know if it'll come back. You know, we've read through the Bible before, but like we've said before, a lot of times you come back on things, you go, wow, I don't remember that. And so um, I don't know. I don't know exactly historically what that means for Zerubbabel to be a signet ring for God. But well, a other signet than... ring is something that you use to to seal, to yes. put the king's seal on a directive, mm-hmm. right? Like this is how you know that the king wrote this. You either put their, using the signet ring, you either put the seal at the bottom of a law or you roll up a scroll and you seal it. And then the recipient looks at the seal that is put on there by the signet ring and they know that it's from the king. And the fact that it's still closed means it's for their eyes only and and they've received their message. So I love the imagery of a signet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get the, I get the imagery. I'm just uh, not not a hundred percent sure on how that relates exactly with Zerubbabel other than apparently um well they actually did it this time I would say it's because they actually did it yeah I suppose so I suppose so next Um, phase I just liked it because I just liked it because I I love it when the bible specifically names someone and it's not like this vague promise you know like you are my people blah blah this is Zerubbabel like this guy has gone through a lot he's trying to restore the kingdom he's doing his job as best he can and the lord says you know what I got you um, I got your back. And mm-hmm. I really like that imagery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, mm-hmm. You know, the, he, he he's he's kind of in charge. He is pressing for things he's to happen. Yeah. And things are happening. And they are happening the way God is kind of saying that they should happen. And so so that is cool. And then God calls him out specifically, which is uh, something we don't, I don't know, we don't see that so much today. Which maybe speaks to <laughs> where where we are where we're sitting uh, on this whole thing. So that did anybody basic... else notice that Haggai was like two rather power packed chapters that really I thought I got a lot more out of Haggai this time than any other time I've read it, and I think mm-hmm. it's because we're reading it chronologically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think so yeah, too. Yeah, same I here. Same here. We've, yeah. we've we've put it into the perspective because yeah, Haggai is such a it's such a small book two chapters it covers what a, a handful of months i mean literally goes from the sixth month of one year ends up in the ninth month so three right. months it's yep. three months all put into the one little spot what an exciting three months though to to have been a part of maybe if you're if you're really seeing that god is speaking and people are listening and stuff is happening that would have that would be an exciting thing to be a part of so very very cool but that basically wraps up Haggai. Now, uh, next week, we are going to get into the book of Zechariah, and we're going to sit there for a bit. I'm thinking we'll probably look at chapters one through four. I haven't really looked ahead yet, but um, I suppose for our listeners' sake, let's start looking at chapters one through four, and we will start talking about the book of Zechariah next week. And so while you are waiting for that and reading uh, ahead... Uh, and waiting for us, remember that you can reach out to us at attvpodcast at theadventure.org. Check us out on Facebook. Uh, make sure that you share the podcast with your friends and family. And make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so we can reach you in your feed each and every week. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening.